0: Welcome to Pod Save America. I'm John Favreau. I'm Dan Pfeiffer. Dan, welcome to Pod Save America, your first episode. I'm excited to be part of the Crooked Media family. Absolutely. Today on the pod, we have Ambassador Norma Eisen, who was the former Obama Special Counsel uh, for Ethics. In the White House. Norm kept us on a straight and narrow when we were in the White House. So we will be talking to Norm all about the press conference yesterday and Trump's conflicts of interest and his attempts to uh, rectify that situation, which uh, I don't think went very well. Um, (laughs) First, before we get into it, a little housekeeping. Thank you to everyone who listened, who reached out, who rated us on iTunes uh, for our first episode Positive America currently right now is still number one in the iTunes store, which is thanks to all you guys. So please keep giving us good ratings if you haven't already in the iTunes store. Tell a friend. There's still a lot of people who listen to us on Keeping It 1600 who I see on Twitter who, who didn't know that we've moved over yet. So still trying to get our audience back. So if you guys would tell some people to, uh, to listen in, if you like our program, we'd be very appreciative.
1: Tell a friend, people. Tell a friend.
0: <laughs> uh, Dan, let's start with the farewell address. Obama's farewell address on Monday in Chicago. Neither of us were there. I was very sad about it.
1: I know, me too. I didn't realize how sad I would be about not being there until you like went on Instagram or Facebook and basically every person we know was there, like seeing people I haven't seen in, you know, eight or ten years. And it was pretty pretty amazing. And I was pretty sad about it
0: I was too. We had we were focused on the first episode and the launch, and like I was like physically happy that I wasn't getting on a plane to Chicago and staying out till like two in the morning that night, but I was sort of emotionally depressed all day when I saw it but you I'm sure you checked out the speech as I did and um what what did you think of the speech?
1: Where did you watch it? Did you watch it at home
0: uh, watched it at home, but then love it. And Tommy and I had to go to a dinner for this company. And so we uh, we basically heard the latter half of the speech in an Uber on public radio (laughs) on the drive to Venice. And we're like, you know, silently like tearing up in the Uber. <laughs> that's that's how we heard the rest of it.
1: Yeah, we. I watched it at home on like ten minute delay, so I would put my phone away, which was actually like really nice because then I didn't have to be on Twitter when it was happening. Oh, yeah. uh, because my wife, I was waiting for my wife who was stuck in an Uber that started going the wrong direction. So this is <laughs> there's a lot of Uber threads here. I you know I think up until. They started playing "City of Blinding Lights" when POTUS walked out. I it had not fully hit me yet that Barack Obama is no longer going to be our president next week. Like that, like yeah. I knew that intellectually, obviously, like an election happened, and you know, I've had this slow roll of I've been to D.C. in the White House a couple times. I've seen POTUS a couple of times. I've seen all our old friends a couple of times, but like this was the one where, like the sort of the emotions came out where it really the shock were off and it was, this is the end of this chapter of, yeah. you know, our personal lives and, and the country.
0: I was struck by, I mean, so much has changed in eight years and we're about to face something fairly scary, I think, and challenging. But I was sort of struck by how little changed about him since he sort of first stepped on that stage in 2004 in Boston. And you know, some people say, "Oh, that was that's a more a sunnier, more optimistic message." I, I still think that sort of like the optimism and the and the faith and the hope he had in two thousand four was was still there in this speech. And he talked about things in this speech that he he'd be he he gave warnings in this speech that he'd sort of been giving his entire presidency. Right when uh, I mean, the whole the the theme of the speech, I think, was what is required to maintain democracy. What does democracy require in the 21st century? And uh, he sort of went through the different challenges to a fair democratic system, inequality, racial tensions, autocracy around the world. Uh, And so he sort of ticked through all those things, you know, but they are challenges that he's been talking about basically since he's, he got into public life. Um, And they just happen to be heightened right now with a Trump presidency coming. But I don't. It's weird because some people. I saw Jonathan Chait wrote an interesting piece about this about the speech where he said that basically the whole speech was a warning about Trumpism. In a way, I think it was, but it was also a warning about all the conditions in our country and the world right. that led to a President Trump. And so it wasn't directly about Trump himself, but sort of what got us here. You know.
1: Yeah, Trump is a symptom, not the disease. I think in the way yeah. that speech was written.
0: I think that's exactly right. And My was, other. Go ahead. My
1: other non-serious takeaway from it was everyone always like puts up those two pictures of you know Barack Obama in 2009, and Barack Obama now, and they're like, "Obama's gotten so old; the presidency's aged him. He has gray hair." But everyone posted on social media all their photos from campaign days. Mm-hmm. We have also aged a lot. <laughs> like, uh, yeah, <laughs> he may actually be doing better than some of us. <laughs> it's like we were. America elected a very young man, staffed by a bunch of children, to run the country, and thank God it worked out because we were very, very young, and we looked even younger than we were back then.
0: I also had about 10, 15 pounds on me when, when I started the White House. <laughs> yes, I the, the well, ca- I had the them, campaign I had, them when I I had not White gone house, away so. when I look at the pictures of <laughs> yeah. me in oh9 with my. Also, why did anyone let me shave my head? But that that was uh, I, I,
1: yeah. It was until 2013. I thought you were going prematurely bald, and you were just getting ahead of it. Yeah, I was that, shocked when you showed up, when you left the White House and came back with hair like six <laughs> months later.
0: <laughs> oh, it's so. In some ways, we're better. But no, no. I, I thought, look, I thought it was. I thought it was a great speech. I was so. I was happy he ended. You know, I have one final ask as your president. Same thing I asked when you took a chance on me eight years ago. I'm asking you to believe not in my ability to bring about change, but in yours. To me, that that's the central message of his presidency, of his campaigns, and it is also the greatest contrast to Donald Trump, whose message in the campaign was, I alone can fix it, right? And for all yeah. the commentary on how, you know, Obama's presidency was a self-referential presidency, and it was all about his personality and his story, all of which I think is way overdone and bullshit. You know, the the, the message from the very beginning is... The uh for a democracy to work, everyone has to participate. And you cannot just depend on the people that you elect to bring about change. You have to continue working and fighting and participating every single day.
1: Yeah, I I think the the speech a lot of people say this this is a you know, a direct line from the O4 convention speech, and there's no question there are them, there's thematic similarity there and and you are right that it's he has the same optimism as president if somewhat tempered by, you know, years of being on the front lines of battles. Mm -hmm. But the speech I thought it was most like was the Yes, We Can speech after Obama lost in New Hampshire in 2008. Because, like, that was the same context, was a bunch of people who had incredibly high hopes, who believed in something, who had gotten let down by circumstance, uh, you know, by an election, and you know stepping in at that moment when people are lacking hope and giving them hope for the future is i think the best obama and you know i am sure that you know at least among the tens of thousands of obama volunteers and organizers and staffers um a lot of them got up that wednesday morning and you know sort of looking for what the thing they can do is to make an impact here and i think that was that was sort of the message was to the people let down by the election but that we can you know we control our fate and at the end of the day what obama stands for what we stand for is the future and trump is a throwback to a rapidly dying past
0: yeah and and also the this the idea that changes and the fight for change is it's hard and it's unending right and it and it also it doesn't end when like you know if we elect a democratic congress and we beat trump and elect a democratic president like Job's not done then either you know you don't you don't just elect it's tr- politics is not transactional you don't just elect leaders that you agree with and then step away and hope that they fix everything right. and, and I think that's that's been his message from the start, and I also think that's what the Trump administration and the people who voted for Trump are going to find out soon too
1: <laughs> a lot you know a lot of people have said that you know like the che piece that this was basically a big speech quote unquote subtweeting trump mm-hmm. um presidents don't subtweet people but Along that vein, the, the like the other underlying message there, I thought, other than just a simple message of the country, which was the main part here, was a message to Democrats about how – what we should stand for and how we should stand for it in this new era, right? He, he actually laid out a pretty smart test and message for the Affordable Care Act fight that's happening, Yes. Um, in, in a good, a good position for Democrats that hopefully they adopt that is slightly more clever than, uh, hashtag make America sick again. Um, and, uh. you know, so I thought, you know, I thought like there's a lot for the country who was worried about the future to take from that speech. There's a lot of nostalgia for people who were part of this journey of President Obama from that speech. And I think there's a lot for the people who are engaging in the battles to come to learn from. That speech, I think he he there's a, there there are like hints of a roadmap in there for the future for the for the progressive movement.
0: Absolutely, yeah. No, I I was struck by it wasn't just a farewell address. It was it was a blueprint. You know, as 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 I think of what Axelrod would say is it was an exhortation. Very Axelrodian word <laughs> there. <laughs> yes. Yes. All right. So let's go from wh- the, let's go from that go very it. high plane to uh, the leak. <laughs> Pun very much intended. Um yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So like while yeah while that speech was happening, if, if there wasn't a better contrast or or sadder contrast, I guess there were news reports that U.S. intelligence officials, uh, FBI, CIA, DNI, Director of National Intelligence, briefed both. President Obama and Donald Trump uh, separately, along with, I think, eight leaders in Congress, and no one else got this briefing on the Russian hacking operation. And during that briefing, reports are that they informed both Trump and Obama that there are reports that the Russians have compromising information on Donald Trump that they could use to blackmail him with, including, you know, stories about prostitutes in hotels in Russia, business dealings, all kinds of other stuff. So, BuzzFeed publishes the dossier that or the full dossier that basically the intelligence officials borrowed from to relay the information to Trump and Obama. And all hell breaks loose. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, there's there's a lot going. On. I mean, you should read some of the stories about this because it it definitely reads like, directly out of a bad spy novel. (laughs) I mean, but to try to, like, put together the story here, exactly what happened, because it's very confusing. Apparently, an ex-British spy named Christopher Steele was hired by a firm, a research firm, that was hired by a Republican donor back in the campaign to dig up stuff on Trump. This ex-spy has been well-respected in the past. He worked on uh, many different cases and had helped the FBI in the past, so he's not some... Crazy guy. He used to spy in Moscow. He's did this for a long time. He found enough evidence to sort of outline two different Russian operations, one to find compromising information on Trump and two meetings between the Russian government and the Trump campaign during the 2016 campaign. Put together this document. It sort of made its way around Washington and everywhere else. It was passed around to a couple of Republican operatives during the campaign. Rick Wilson, who was working for Marco Rubio at the time, he saw it. By the fall, some documents had been given to the FBI. It was also passed to British intelligence because the guy who did it didn't just want it to be politicized in the United States. He he wanted the Brits to have it, too. At one point, John McCain found it came across it. McCain gave it to the FBI because he thought it was important enough to give to the FBI. And then finally, the CIA, FBI, and the NSA found it. uh, I don't know if they found it persuasive and they didn't. It was unverifiable, they said, the reports in the document. They could not verify them. And there was plenty of reason to doubt their veracity. And yet, they still thought it important enough to brief the current president and the next president about So, I don't know. So, I guess there's a couple questions here. One, there's been this journalistic debate. Should BuzzFeed have published the documents at all? What do you think about that?
1: What is the crooked media position on
0: this? (laughs) So, I've gone back and forth on this. Like, I just... I think BuzzFeed was right to publish them with a fairly hefty warning, right? Which is, we cannot verify the contents of this. There's plenty of reason to doubt the contents of this document. Also... BuzzFeed did not publish it like 20 days ago when there was no news about U.S. intelligence officials briefing the current and future presidents about this, right? Like, I think if, if there hadn't been news that this made it to the level of Trump and Obama and that our intelligence officials found it necessary to tell them, then they didn't have a right to publish it. But the fact that we have news reports that Obama and Trump were getting this information, and the information is out there circulating around Washington, circulating around news organizations. I don't know. It seems like with a dose of caution, then, then you could publish it. It's a close right. call. And but
1: I agree it's a close call. And I will say in the fullness of what limited self-awareness I have that I am sure I would have a different position if this was a dossier about Barack Obama. Mm-hmm. Um But so, you know, bias is on my sleeve here. But I agree with you that if it is significant enough to have been briefed to the President of the United States and the President elect and has been written about as an existing document, I'm not really sure how someone doesn't publish that. You know, now we are obviously dancing around the very salacious accusations in there of what that compromising information is. And I don't, I don't know if I'm adhering to crooked media, journalistic ethic policies, or if you have developed those yet. Um, but you, mean, you mean the golden shower Dan? Yeah, <laughs> yes. I mean, go. I feel like we were compelled to make a bedwetter joke, but we'll just let that <laughs> A lot of people made them um, on
0: Twitter for us. It was great.
1: Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Including friend of the pod, Mitch Stewart, this morning. Of course. Um, it, it's, a, it's a close call. I think there was a pretty interesting debate between it was an, it was build this interview but it was really a debate between Chuck Todd of Meet the Press and Ben Smith the editor in chief of BuzzFeed News about their decision to do this and it was pretty clear from the interview that Chuck disagreed pretty strenuously with that decision. Um, well, one thing Chuck said
0: are, one thing Chuck said to Ben that was just wrong was he was like you guys publish fake news and. It's not fake news. It may be fake news. Like someday we may find out that every single allegation in that document is false. Very, could very well be true. But we don't know that yet, right? So, and and the intelligence officials still found it necessary to, to tell the president and the future president. So, yeah.
1: And part of the reason, if you believe some of the reporting here about why they included it, was it was a piece of supporting evidence that the Russians may have had compromising information on Trump and not used it. Which is evidence that the Russians were releasing information for the purposes of helping Trump and hurting Hillary Clinton. Right. And
0: yeah. I was also trying, I'm trying to think of the best analogy. Like, imagine if after the 2008 campaign, intelligence officials had briefed George W. Bush and Barack Obama on the fact that Russians who had somehow hacked the campaign claim to have information that Barack Obama wasn't, in fact, born in the United States. Totally uncorroborated, um, but obviously we all knew there had been rumors about Obama not being born in the United States. We knew that all this was a conspiracy, but now the Russians claim to have hard evidence about that, and then BuzzFeed publishes that. I mean, we would have all freaked out and said, like, you shouldn't publish that stuff like that because we were in the White House, but I don't, like... It would everyone? Would the media have gone crazy and said that they shouldn't have done that? Now, back in two thousand and eight, maybe because it's <laughs> people had a, you know people there was a higher uh, higher bar there, but I don't know. Like I could see that happening pretty easily.
1: I mean, the press, including
0: this is not an attack on our friend Chuck
1: Todd, but NBC was one of the major organs for Donald Trump to go out and get and shout birther claims from you know as loud as he possibly could on the Today show. Cause he was an NBC, he was doing the rollout or the season premiere of celebrity apprentice at the time. And he was on the today show all the time. And sometimes the today show was very good about saying it wasn't true, but a lot of times they weren't. So it seems hard that you can put Donald Trump on your TV show, on your TV network to say provably false things about Barack Obama. But this document that's part of, you know, possibly one of the most, the ma- major political scandals of our time and most, in, and most, alarming international relation, you know, international issue we've dealt with in a while can't, it should not be discussed. I think it's a really, I would encourage people who are to just watch the interview between Chuck and Ben about this. Cause I think it kind of gets to both sides of the argument other than Chuck's one point about fuck new, fake news. Uh, it gets to both sides of the argument, I think in a pretty smart, rational way.
0: Yeah. And again, I I don't I don't think it's the easiest call. I think both sides of the argument merit here. Um, But I I definitely come down on the on the BuzzFeed side. So then Trump, this is right before Trump has his press conference yesterday. (laughs) Um, And what a press conference it was. So so first of all, weird open to the press conference where incoming White House press secretary Sean Spicer comes out and just sort of blasts the BuzzFeed story. Attacked CNN, oddly. CNN did not publish the document, by the way. CNN right. just uh, reported that the intel chiefs had briefed Obama and Trump. So Spicer, Trump, later Kellyanne Conway on Anderson Cooper, which is quite a 10 minutes of video if you're going to watch it, and and Kellyanne Conway on Seth Meyers, which is also an awesome interview, um, all just like lie through their teeth about CNN to the country that CNN had somehow published... Fake news, published this document, was lying about this. Actually, nothing I can say. You work for CNN, so you can't say this, but I can because I often criticize CNN. Literally nothing about what CNN had said was false about this story. And it has now been it's now been proven to be true because Clapper late last night, the director of national intelligence, basically admitted that they had briefed Trump and Obama on this information. (laughs) <laughs> and they said they they have not made any judgment that the information in the document is reliable, but they said they had briefed them basically because they wanted to give them quote the fullest possible picture of any matters that might affect national security. So Clapper admitted that they had you know so the 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 CNN report that the Trump campaign had de- decried is one hundred percent accurate. I just thought it was weird that Spicer came out at the beginning. Like, have you ever seen anything like that?
1: No, never. And I'd say a couple things. One, it's it's worth remembering that. The press secretary is supposed to be the media's advocate within the West Wing, right? It's a balancing act. Robert Gibbs, Jake Carney, Josh Ernest all had to do that balancing act. But it's clear that the way you get um, approval in the Trump world is shit on the press. So that's going to be his job. Yeah. Two, he hasn't even started yet. So And he seems wound a little too tight for this job. <laughs> like, I mean, the briefings <laughs> might be if they ever actually happen and are not just uh, a meeting with Breitbart and – RT uh, will be interesting TV to watch uh, for sure. But it was just very strange. It's very strange to have a staffer come out before the president to do that. Um, And it's not constructive. Like, it's not. I think, I think, like, Sean's a pro. Like, he's been doing communications in DC for a long time. Like, you may be, you may get a pretty good pat on the back from Trump for doing that, but you're not serving your boss's long-term interest in any, or even his medium-term interest in any way, shape, or form to to handle it that way. I thought it was just yeah. pretty unprofessional and pretty dumb, pretty dumb.
0: Well, so, I mean, it was sort of like the first in a series of attacks on the press during that press conference, then Trump got up and he called BuzzFeed News a failing pile of garbage. Um, <laughs> he, uh, <laughs> yeah, really and then he um and then he started to oh then so Jim Acosta from CNN asks a question and he basically refuses to answer Jim's question and says at one point he just says you're fake news and shouts him down which was pretty it was also it was pretty scary too the fact that like here's a question he didn't want and Trump just said no you're not getting a question moved on and then answered a question from Breitbart I thought that was, was that pretty... who the
1: next person was? Was Breitbart?
0: Yeah, no, he went to he went he went next to a Breitbart reporter.
1: Huh. That's that is one of the many advantages of having basically state-sponsored media is that you can turn to them in times like this.
0: Yeah, no kidding. What did you think about the Acosta thing?
1: I think, like as you point out, I'm a CNN contributor, um, so I work with Jim. Uh, CNN had to. I mean, he had to try to get a question in. Like, that was the right thing to do, I think. There are times when reporters are incredibly obnoxious about getting their questions asked.
0: Yeah. Incredibly we, obnoxious.
1: And they do not serve themselves or their readers or their public well. I don't think this is one of those cases. I think if the president, if the future press secretary of the United States and the president-elect has just lied about your news organization, you should do what you can to ask a question about that. Like that is, the, that is the right thing to do. And the scary – there are some scary things about this, about the future, which is according to Acosta, Sean Spicer threatened to kick him out if he tried to ask another question. Right. So that seems to be – seems fairly suppressive. And then a Republican member of Congress from Texas today said that anyone who asked questions like that should not be allowed uh, at the White House or in or press conferences like that. Like you get – like we're, we're getting to a – There are real hints at dangerous levels of authoritarianism in how Trump and his team are going to handle the press. And the problem the press has, like you tweeted, um, if Trump did that to a reporter, someone should ask that reporter's question, which I I understand actually did happen later, that another reporter asked the question that Acosta wanted, which is good. But the problem the press has is they don't have the same collective interest so they're sort of in this together, but they're also competing with each other at the same time, and they're competing over a ever-dwindling pie. And so, like, in a smart world, the press would figure out – they would come together and try to come up with ways so that – because they all benefit from a certain number of questions being asked about how to do that in a smart way and how to stand up for each other, but – Their competitive instincts with each other prevent them from organizing themselves in a way that would do that. Which is, I mean, that's just life. Like that's not—it's
0: life. Although I I do think if they want to survive this era and they want to, you know, they want to actually get Trump to answer stuff, they're going to have to be creative in what they do and possibly put some of their competitive differences aside. You know, I mean, a couple things I think the press could do in future press conferences, or they might what they might have learned from this press conference is like. You know what I was saying is if someone doesn't get a question, the next reporter should ask the question. Multi-part questions with Trump are yes. not a great idea. I never thought multi part questions with Obama were never really a great idea. Like you ask, you try to get in like four questions at once, and then it all becomes sort of jumbled. Obama would at least go back and try to remember what all the questions were and answer them. Trump just basically will blow through the multi-part question and just say one thing and then move on. You know,
1: I don't know why this is so hard for the press to learn. Like. Obama would oftentimes do it because he likes to give very fulsome answers um, at press conferences. But other times he wouldn't, right? Like, You are setting yourselves up for failure if you give a person who controls the microphone three different questions to answer where they can pick how they're going to allocate the three minutes they're going to spend on it. You know, you and I have done a lot of interviews. If you ask me a multi-part question, I will start with the part of the question I want to answer and hope you forget about the other part. And so just yeah. ask a one-part question, and then he force the person being interviewed to answer that question, right?
0: It's Yeah, it's, and also, like, questions with pointed answers, right? Like, yes or no, confirm, deny, like, yes. not, not, like, you know, what about your gaffes type questions. <laughs> yes, because
1: yeah. if you ask a specific question... Can you confirm that do you have any knowledge that members of your team talk to Russia? I'm just making up a fake question. Yes or no? Right. And then if he doesn't answer that, you can say, you didn't answer my question. If you answer ask three vague questions, you're it's pretty hard to follow
0: up. Yeah, as opposed to like, what do you think about allegations that some of your team met with Russia? <laughs> Which is a lot of the style of some of these questions. What do you think about reports that? You know, like he yes. you should never ask him what he thinks about stuff
1: treating the president like a pundit it's just it's it's not a good use of anyone's time and that would always good, be the he, thing you know, that would drive me crazy in the he's a pundit he's a pundit. Dem- at press would demand a press conference then we'd have a press conference and it'd be a bust of question the same questions they would have asked david axelrod if he was on meet the press right? yes <laughs> it's no it's very like, true why
0: okay let's get to some of trump's answers on the russia stuff he basically finally admitted that russia was responsible for the hacking which he hadn't done in a long time Probably called it fake news a half a dozen times. He did. He brought up WikiLeaks to argue that the uh, leak was a good thing, uh, that the leaks, you know, that the leaks from WikiLeaks were a good thing in the campaign. And then he also cited Russia's denial about the compromising information as a defense, which seems odd.
1: <laughs> the other thing, the I mean, <laughs> it was so. I mean, the answers were insane, and people <laughs> who say that he gave a good performance as i think politico playbook did this morning or somewhere in politico
0: yeah it was playbook that's
1: that's an insane approach right like are, have we lowered the threshold for of expectations for trump so low that literally drooling on not drooling on himself is success well this like, is my he, problem Is like
0: people think that because everyone got the election wrong that the way to get things right is to think the opposite of everything that you feel in your gut. <laughs> right? yes, so right. if you look at if you look at that press conference and think that it was a complete disaster, uh, the smart thing to do is be like, "No, it worked like a charm." You know, and I just I mean, it could have, but there's there's not necessarily evidence that it was a good performance. I mean, the reason I tweeted that about Politico this morning because there was some caller to some trump voter called up a minnesota public radio this morning was like i voted for trump uncertain about my vote and that was just the most awful performance i've ever seen it was pathetic well you know this this trump voter was complaining about it you're like you at least might want to ask people about what they thought about the performance first
1: and it's also the judgment of success or failure is not in how much his poll numbers may go up in the next five to seven minutes right Right? right, he told a bunch of lies that are going to come back to haunt him. Sean Spicer declared that Trump had never met Carter Page and didn't know who he was. Who was one of the in this uh, report you were, you referenced? Were one of the people who who was seen as a potential intermediary between the Trump campaign and Russian intelligence. Yet Trump specifically named Carter Page in the Washington Post editorial board as one of his foreign policy advisors who were helping him on matters. He told lies that are going to come back to haunt him. He made mistakes come back to haunt him. He. Uh, He basically set out an impossible standard for Obamacare repeal and replace. Oh, yeah. Let's let's talk about that
0: because I thought that was that was an interesting response here. So he he basically said that there will be no repeal and delay, that he wants to replace it, replace Obamacare, possibly simultaneously, and that he will have a plan to do so when his health and human services secretary, Tom Price, is confirmed this is going to be a tricky one, right? There, there is, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you cannot replace, Republicans without Democratic votes can uh, repeal Obamacare and are tr- trying to head down that path right now. They cannot replace Re- Obamacare without Democratic votes uh, unless they eliminate the filibuster, which, you know, 2017, nothing's out of the question. But even if they did, nuke the filibuster and put an Obamacare replacement plan in place. Trump's promise to not cut Medicare, to not cut Medicaid, to have a terrific replacement that ensures everyone that makes Obamacare cheaper, that makes a health insurance cheaper, that makes premiums go down, that is next to impossible to do if he follows any of the plans Republicans have put forward, including his own plan in the campaign.
1: No, it is actually – it's not next to impossible. It is absolutely fucking impossible. <laughs> it cannot be done. There is no way in which it can happen. And even if it could, you could not do it in a month. It took us almost a year to get Affordable Care Act bill to be voted on, and Democrats have been working on that project for 40 fucking years. So I yep. <laughs> Like the Republicans have been saying they're going to come up with a repeal with a replace plan. Every year for the last six years and every year they have not done it. It is not possible. And the reason it's not possible is because because of the how the conservative the Democratic caucus in the Senate was when we had 60 votes, the plan that could pass is the essentially the Republican plan for universal health care. It is the plan Republicans used – the basis of that plan is the plan Republicans used as their alternative in the 90s against a single-payer plan. And so there is not something to the right of Obamacare that that can work. And the specific things they have talked about, particularly – the most popular part of the Affordable Care Act is getting rid of the ban on pre-existing conditions, right? So you cannot deny someone – Healthcare care because of a pre-existing condition. Pre-existing conditions can be anything, including pregnancy. And in the most popular part by far, the only way to do that is with essentially universal coverage where people are for – you need the mandate to do that. And so that will go away under every Republican plan. The It will throw the insurance markets into chaos. Health care costs will go up and fewer people will be insured. And many, many, many of those people are Trump voters.
0: Yeah, which is why like, that's the which most is why amazing Republicans thing. are so nervous about this. I mean, they're I think, also stupid, so. Yeah. <laughs> but of all the things we talk about that that matter to voters, right, I, to me, and again, like, we don't want to be in the prediction business anymore. But, look, there are a lot of people who, under almost any one of these Republican plans, or every one of these Republican plans that we've seen so far, would lose their health insurance. Millions of people who would lose their health insurance. Millions of people who would not be paying lower premiums, uh, and in many cases, higher premiums. So I just, I don't know what they're going to do here. Now, this, again, and I said this on Monday, this is not to say that there are not plenty of improvements to be made on the Affordable Care Act, on Obamacare. You can have more competition in some of these markets so that premiums and deductibles aren't as high You know, with a public option. Um, you can make sure people are paying less for their health care by increasing the subsidies that a lot of people are getting. You can expand Medicaid in some of the states that it's not hasn't been expanded so that more people are covered who are low income. Plenty of ways to improve this bill. But that so far we haven't seen any proposals to that effect from any members of the Republican Congress or the Trump administration.
1: There is no question that and we knew this going in and it's probably even harder than we thought it would be. The politics of health care of passing a law to give people access to healthcare are really hard, Yeah. right? People, healthcare is a very personal issue. Most people have healthcare through their employers, so it doesn't affect them directly, but gives them fear of what could happen. It is very, very hard to do. And it was the right thing to do, and I, I will argue till the day I die that you get elected, you build up your approval rating so you can help people, and you should spend your political capital in giving... Healthcare to twenty million people is a pretty hard to think of a better use of political capital than that. But the politics of taking healthcare away from people are ten times worse than the politics of passing the Affordable Care Act. I mean, just some of the things in there are amazing. Do you, th- you think getting rid of the ban on pre-existing conditions, getting rid of you know, taking just purely taking healthcare away from Trump's base seems problematic? Repealing the <laughs> Affordable Care Act blows up the deficit. And gives a, gives a big tax cut, $7 million tax cut, to some of the richest people in America. Like, there, I mean, it is a 1,000 campaign ads waiting to be made. And,
0: and you can say that once it happens, they'll just lie and say, oh, no, it's, it's better. And, you know, there'll be this whole debate again, fake news, real news. Republicans lie and say it's great. We say it's bad. But the difference here is that people are going to feel this in their own lives. When you lose health care, it doesn't matter what the news reports say or what Republicans say or what Democrats say. You're not going to have health care anymore and you're going to be upset and it's right. going to be potentially life threatening. And that's, you know, it's a God. So what do you what do you think the best route is here for opposition to this? Um, we talked a little bit about this on Monday and, you know, I was sort of identifying some of the red state senators or some of the senators who are up in 2018, Republican senators who are probably going to have the most competitive races like Flake and Heller. I think it's probably also worth people calling and petitioning senators in red states or senators in other uh, competitive states in 2018, like the Joe Manchins of the world. Joe Manchin, who represents a state in West Virginia where, you know, a disproportionate number of people are on medicaid right like i, I can't even as conservative and, and right wing sometimes as joe manchin is i can't imagine him wanting to cut back on on medicaid for people so what what do you think about like sort of the best path for for resistance here
1: i think it is one for you are right that there's a certain set of target states and it's the 2018 states and it's the moderate Republicans, Republicans, my moderate is, I'm using air quotes right now. Um, so <laughs> then we can see that people who are, who are going to define themselves in part in opposite as somewhere between the Democrats and Trump, right? That could be Lisa Murkowski or people like that, because you got to keep this under you get there's a chance to keep this under 50 if we can keep all the Democrats together. So definitely, we should let every Democrat know that anything less than the standard Barack Obama set out about coverage and cost in his speech is unacceptable to Democrats and there is a price to pay at the polls. And what we ideally, if you know a independent or Republican, a Trump voter who cares about this issue and you can get them to communicate with their member, that I think is particularly compelling. Yeah. I voted for Trump, but, you know, and you can see that in states like Kentucky, where which is one of the more success has one of the most successful state-based Affordable Care Act exchanges. And you know, went by like I don't know a hundred points to Trump, and uh, there are a lot of people that suffer there. And you get and that we and I think as a party, like what can the Democratic Party do? Not just the average citizen, but the average Democratic Party can give the average citizen the tools they need. They need to be activists here. One is a compelling and agreed upon, reasonable, sounding message on this that we all echo, and I hope it flows from what the president said on Tuesday night. Yes. Second is, um, we as a party, if we can find ways to highlight these voters who would suffer, who were Trump voters. they might be, you know, the new soccer moms or Obama Trump voters, uh, people voting for Obama in twelve and Trump in sixteen. You know, the Democratic Party, progressive organization, can find those voters who who will talk about the cost of losing health care and elevate those voices in paid media and free media. You know, have videos that people can share on Facebook. You know, that's, I think that's a lot of where we talk a lot in terms of citizen activism about calling your member and that and emailing your member. And that is very valuable because it's shocking, but it actually works because uh, it affects the daily lives of the staffers who help the members make these decisions. Mm-hmm. But also, you know, if you see stories about maybe, I don't know, written by Crooked Media about uh, <laughs> good plug, the <laughs> about the effects of repealing the Affordable Care Act, share those on social media. Make sure your friends and family see those. Let people know. Use your role as an influencer in your network to inform people about the actual consequences. You have, every Everyone has to be a bulwark against the fake news, disinformation, propaganda campaign that the right has gotten very good at very quickly.
0: Yes, exactly. And don't let it like dispirit you and say, oh, this is impossible to get any kind of message through because of you know, what they do all the time. You're right. I mean, yeah. stories still have power. And these are huge stakes for millions of people. And I, I actually think that we um, we have a pretty good fighting chance here to, to stop this from happening. Okay. When we come back, we will have Ambassador Norm Eisen on to talk all about ethics and the Trump administration. Uh, we didn't get to that part of the press conference, but we're saving it all for Norm. So, uh, We'll have Norm on next. You're listening to Pod Save America with John Favreau, Dan Pfeiffer, John Lovett, and Tommy Vitor. With us on the pod today, we have Ambassador Norm Eisen, who was the former Obama special counsel for ethics. We used to call you the ethics czar. Norm, welcome to the program.
2: Thank you, John. Hi, Dan. Hey,
0: Norm. Norm, what did you think of that Trump presser yesterday? Did he do everything you had hoped for to comply uh, with ethics rules or what?
2: (laughs) Fabs! it was one of the worst things my ethics eyes have ever seen. Uh, I laid out a a, a five-part scorecard the day before. We did it the day before because we didn't want to be accused of moving the goalposts. It was bipartisan. It was me, uh, the Bush era ethics czar, uh, painter, Richard Painter, mm-hmm. and uh, America's uh, premier constitutional scholar, Larry Tribe. And uh, Trump got an F on all five <laughs> classes on his report card. We said he had to break ownership interests, uh, like every president has done for four decades. He held on to all of his ownership interests. We said he's got to set up a blind trust. Joe G says is the policy of the federal government. Again, everybody has done it since Carter. Blind trusts are the equivalent. No. He refused to do that. He put his kids in charge, which is the opposite of the independent trustee that we wanted to be able to to have faith in. An independent professional with no connection to Donald Trump. It's the biggest no-no to put a kid in as a trustee in a blind trust. Fourth perhaps the biggest problem, and this is going to create huge legal exposure for him, he's going to be violating the Constitution because he didn't do anything significant about his uh, foreign government payments and other benefits, so-called emoluments, expressly prohibited under the Constitution because they can distort uh, your judgment. You guys were both my clients uh, when I was the White House ethics czar, so you know uh, that I'm pretty tough on this stuff. What he did was a joke. It violates the Constitution. And then finally we asked for a strong ethics firewall, a big, beautiful wall, to screen off his family's business interests. He set up an ethics sieve. It's like an ethics colander. You could drain spaghetti through his uh, plan. So uh, it's a total fail.
0: <laughs> Norm, thank you for that. That was good. Well, so uh, let's let's go through some of the uh, some of the things you just talked about. I want to start with the emoluments issue because you know his lawyer, Trump's lawyer, at the press conference yesterday made this argument that, well, if a foreign government is paying to stay in one of the Trump hotels. It's like they're paying a hotel bill. It's fair market value. That couldn't have been what the emoluments clause meant. And now he's donating any of the profits from foreign governments staying in hotels back to the U.S. Treasury. So I heard a few people after that be like, well, I don't know. That sounds pretty good. Isn't that isn't that clearing it up? So what, what's the problem with uh, the quasi-solution that Trump's lawyer announced yesterday?
2: So the solution is we're going to take the – what she said was we're going to – they have an existing bookkeeping – system, which they purport tracks foreign government payments at their hotels, and at the end of year, they're going to return the profits from these hotel rooms. There's a lot of problems with that. Number one, uh, there's never been this distinction where the recipient has been allowed to say, oh, this part of what the foreign government gave me is profit. This part is to cover my overhead. On the contrary, there's a long line of OLC opinions. Uh, that say you shouldn't make that distinction. Anything that comes from a foreign government has got to be screened out. Number two, this only applies to his hotels. The guy has uh, huge condos, apartments, uh, properties. He's What about the other stuff he's selling to foreign governments? He's a real estate developer, and he's a marketer of his name. So on the real estate side, he requires loans, some of which are from foreign governments. He's got a big one from the Bank of China. And he requires permits. Both of those are constitutionally prohibited emoluments. Emolument means anything of value. And then trademarks. On the uh, licensing side, he's applied for dozens of those since deciding to run for president around the world. Those are emoluments. So this was, uh, you know, uh, totally inadequate. And look, I'm not, you guys know... Uh, that I'm an ethics hard-ass, okay? You, you have, have always been a stickler. in my ethics training. Yes. I, I started with the president. I was just with the president, mm-hmm. and he was joking uh, about the advice I gave him. If it's fun, you can't do it. <laughs> Half tongue-in-cheek, because we had some fun, too, okay? But we had yeah. ethical fun in the White House. <laughs> Uh,
0: this guy, he's
2: gone way over the edge, and it's not going to stand. The courts are not going to allow him to do this.
1: So what happens then?
2: Well, I suspect uh, that uh, there's going to be litigation pretty promptly into his administration because the, the courts are an independent branch of government. They're jealous of their own prerogatives. Seriously, are they going to allow a president to be in naked blatant violation of the Constitution. And this is not a harmless violation. The guy is getting these huge uh, forbidden foreign government payments. Uh, so I think there's going to be a court case, and I think he's going to find himself embroiled in uh, in litigation. It'll get into discovery. Maybe when we're in discovery, we'll finally get his tax returns. But I don't think the courts are going to stand for it. I'll tell you what else. I think the FBI and the career foreign... Um, Uh, corruption prosecutors, the public corruption section of DOJ, these are not political people. They're going to start looking at it, like this $2 billion offer he got from Dubai over the weekend. Once he's in office, people are going to say, gee, why was that offered? What was your reaction? Was there a quid pro quo? Was somebody trying to influence government? So the executive branch will get involved. I think ultimately Congress will feel the political heat when the scandals start to flow. And finally, I think the state attorneys general, they have authority to enforce the Constitution. I think you're going to see them come to the table as well. So he's opening up a needless can of litigation hurt on himself, his family, and what's worse, the White House, which we all love, the institution we were privileged to serve together, and the country. Uh, What a shame. I'm sorry I didn't vote for him, but truly I'm sorry he's taken this choice.
0: So, Norm, give us a scenario where someone doing business with the Trump organization could gain access or exert influence over the Trump administration because of these lax rules. Because I think sometimes in people's head they hear, like, there's a lot of legalese, it seems like this could be rife for corruption, but, like, what, how, how could this make a difference in my life? How could this actually hurt policy that could hurt real people?
2: Well, Fabs, we don't have to look any further than what's been going on in the transition, where you have the family members who are blurring this line, right? They're sitting. I mean, can you imagine in our transition uh, if uh, we had allowed uh, Sasha and Malia to sit in meetings and do deals? Uh, it's in <laughs> We've been impressed since they
0: were any,
1: eight. But <laughs>
2: any of the any of the Child Obama family members, that's <laughs> a million miles away from the way we or both administrations have done business, and the danger when you have an Ivanka sitting there uh, in a meeting with the Japanese prime minister while she's doing business in Japan, when you have the sons sitting in meetings with the leading business executives of the country, the danger is that Trump is doing deals to benefit himself, and he's hurting the people. He's taking the value away from the people that he was elected to help, including some of the people who've suffered the worst in our country in recent years. Today there are media ports, for example, and this is totally unprecedented, that he's meeting with AT&T about the merger that they want to do, and some in the press are speculating he's doing it to get back at CNN. That is guaranteed. These mergers will have a huge effect on all our lives. They can't be the subject of his uh, corrupt intentions uh, or his petty vendettas. So the point is, he's going to uh, he's going to siphon off he's going to do things to benefit himself that hurt the rest of us
1: Norm what about so obviously Trump has a lot of challenges what about some of his staff and advisors like today he announced Rudy Giuliani is going to be in charge of a task force Carl Icahn who has obviously a lot of financial interests around the world is going to be the you know the regulations are Are these people in legal jeopardy? Are there things Trump can do to insulate them by undoing some of the rules you wrote? Like, how does does that process managed?
2: Well, Dan, the icon example that you point to is a good one. And I want to contrast it because I don't only want to be negative. I want to contrast it with Jared Kushner. Uh, Painter and I, everything I've tried to do on this is bipartisan because people obviously know I'm associated uh, with President Obama, with the Democratic Party. I'm proud of having worked for the president, work with both of you, and the incredible accomplishments that this administration has achieved. I make no secret about that. One of the things I'm very proud of, I know it was difficult for everybody, uh, this hurt me more than it hurt you guys, scandal-free White House. When is the last time we had eight years? Trump's been in transition a little over eight weeks. He's had more scandal than we had in eight years in the White House because of these very tough rules. So take the icon example. Dan, it is going to not only hurt ICON, it's going to hurt Trump, and it's going to hurt the country. ICON comes in, they have a press release, they give him an official title, they give him broad sweeping responsibilities as a special advisor, I believe, to the president for regulatory matters. And they claim he's not a government employee, he's just an informal advisor. That is not the law. It makes no sense. It's blurring lines. It appears, now we got to see what happens. Maybe they'll back off, which they sometimes do when there's a public outcry. Blurring lines, how does that hurt people? First of all, Icon, if he gets inside information, he's going to be exposed to insider trading liability if he trades on it. We know he left Trump's victory party to put a billion dollars in play in the stock market. Number two, Trump is liable now after the passage of the Stock Act. Trump is liable for insider trading Uh, if he gives information to icon and icon and goes out and trades on it. Number three, it's going to be bad for others who may be involved. It's going to be a scandal for the White House. It's going to be a distraction for the country. Again, it takes Trump away from doing the things he he said he would do, helping the people. He ran on a platform of draining the swamp. He's flooding it. Now I'm going to tell you what I really think.
0: <laughs> there is one for holding back. What go, Going yeah. forward, how do we monitor instances of corruption in the Trump administration, right? Are we totally relying on the press here? Uh, is that, do you think there's going to be litigation? How do you think this plays out as we go well, forward? Because obviously a lot of this is going to be sort of secret because that's how they set up the laws, the rules. We,
2: we live in a world now, and the three of us uh, live through this in our Government service, the transformation of the world to a world of no secrets. I mean, when we started out, I remember being part of uh the uh group that advised the president whether or not he could use his blackberry when he went into the White House the things that have happened since with the explosion of social media, the proliferation of smartphones and other ways to tape people the sheer volume of the leaks, uh, uh, the instant nature of news, the role of whistleblowers, stepping up people who see or hear things and move forward publicly with it. I don't think it's going to be possible to hide stuff. Here's, how, uh, here's some ways that I think things will come out. One, uh, Trump himself is not very good at concealing things. I mean, I got to tell you, you know, if I were his lawyer... I wouldn't have advised him necessarily to advertise that two billion dollar offer he received as part of this press conference. My eyes popped out of my head.
0: <laughs> he was uh, pretty. Pr- he was pretty proud. He turned down the uh, the bribe I, from know, Dubai. So huh? there's,
2: the in- there's his proclivity for inadvertent transparency. But more than that, (laughs) I think you're going to see, it's been a pretty leaky Trump Tower already. You know, this is not the group of us who were there from day one on the Obama campaign with the bonds of loyalty to the president and to each other. And the pretty leak-free White House that we managed uh, to operate, you're going to see a very leaky porous. It's a gang of rivals. And if one... Uh, if Bannon thinks he can get a leg up on Priebus, uh, that stuff's going to be leaked out. We've already seen some of that coming out of Trump Tower. Very, very leaky. Uh, the press is all over this, and not just in the United States, but globally. You know, we're in this instantaneous connectivity. So the, like the India story that Trump had met with his India business partners, that was pulled off of uh, uh, Indian media and sent back to the United States. Yep. So... Uh, So I think you're going to see global stuff. A lot of FOIA. There's just been the Freedom of Information Act. That's a way you demand information from the government. Uh, The administration supported, President signed into law, the FOIA Improvements Act recently. So FOIA is going to be more robust than ever. The organization that I founded, that I've now gone back to as chair of the board crew, the government watchdog group, Uh, is uh, busy doing FOIA requests. Many, many others are doing the same, so FOIA will be another vehicle. And then this litigation he's opening up is also going to produce discovery And so I don't think, uh, you know, maybe there'll even be a Snowden who pops up to do for Trump's tax returns what uh, Snowden did with the uh, NSA information. So I don't think you're going to be able to hide it. We've never been able to hide scandal since Watergate. It always comes out, and uh, it's not going to be a pretty picture.
0: Okay. Well, that's, well, we'll end on that hopeful note. Uh, Norm, thank you, for all, thank you for all the years of ethical fun in the White House. We, uh, we, we appreciate you. I'm glad
1: I had no assets or business interests when you were in charge of our ethics. So it was pretty easy for John and I.
2: Yeah, well, I tried to impoverish you guys as completely as I could. Uh, best of all, um, the president that we all serve totally committed to this stuff. And that's made a difference in uh, having the most scandal-free White House in modern presidential history. That's an accomplishment we should all be
1: proud of. This is true, Norm I'm, Eisen. I'm thanks. knocking on wood. We have seven days left, so <laughs>
0: I think we'll make it through the last seven days, Spicer. Fing, fingers crossed. Uh, <laughs> Ambassador Norm Eisen, thank you for thank joining, you. and thanks we will guys. talk to you again thanks soon. Dan. Okay, bye bye. Thanks again to Ambassador Norm Eisen for joining us today. And again, go on, tell your friends to sign up for Pod Save America. Rate us in the iTunes store or wherever you get podcasts. And uh, and we will see you again on Monday. Bye, guys. Talk to everyone next week.